I tend to like things that look very alien versus imagery that looks like it could be real because then people get confused. everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. My name is Moritz Stefan and I'm an independent designer of data visualizations. I work as a self-employed truth and beauty operator, that's my self-picked job title, uh, out of my office here in the countryside uh, in the north of Germany. And I am Enrico Bertini, I am a professor at NYU in New York City and I do research in data visualization. Yeah, that's right. And on this podcast, we talk together about data visualization, data analysis, and generally the role data plays in our lives. And usually we do that together with the guests we invite on the show. Yes, but before we start, just the usual quick note. Our podcast is listener supported, so there's no ads. And if you enjoy the show, you may want to consider supporting us with recurring payments on patreon.com slash data stories. Or if you prefer, there is another option. You can just send us a one-time donation on paypal.me slash data stories. That's right. So any, any contributions are much appreciated. Even if you don't have any spare money, that's totally fine too. Um, but if you want to help us, you can also leave us a comment on iTunes or a nice rating or retweet our tweets on Twitter. So there's many ways you, you can help uh, keep the show running. Anyways, let's get started. Um, today we have another uh, guest invited. I'm really excited about this topic. Um, I think it's one maybe that people won't directly associate directly maybe with data visualization immediately, but we'll see there are many, many connections between the fields. And the topic I'm talking about is basically space photography, <laughs> satellite imagery, just viewing the world from, you know, above. It's, it's such an amazing thing. And we have a real expert here uh, today, uh, Robert Simon, who has been working in this for many, many years at NASA and now at planet.com. Uh, and he can tell us a bit uh, about the practice there. So thanks for joining us, Robert. Hi. Hi, Robert. Hi. Can you tell us a bit about yourself, like what you're working on, what you have been working on at NASA and what you're doing now? Uh, just a bit of your, your main fields of activity and your background. Sure. I started out uh, working at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Mm -hmm. And it is one of several NASA centers and it, it specializes in Earth observation and astronomy. And my role there evolved over time, but eventually became sort of doing the visualizations for a website called the Earth Observatory. And mm -hmm. what we were trying to do was sort of explain to non-specialists outside of NASA that NASA didn't just do astronauts, it didn't just do Mars, but we also studied the Earth because from space you can see the entire planet, not quite all at once, but more or less. And mm. so you, you have this very special view of the entire planet. And so you can look at all these interconnected systems. And the Earth Observatory, our mission was to sort of get that information out to a broader public and talk about how interdisciplinary everything was. So it wasn't like we would just talk about the atmosphere or just talk about volcanoes. It was how volcanoes interacted with the atmosphere and how that might play into uh the interaction with man-made climate change and things like that. And so it's a just a very um, long and um, distinguished discipline that NASA has been doing. And we wanted to make sure that this information was more widely known. That's an awesome job to have, at least it sounds like. <laughs> it really was. Um, as I said, it kind of evolved over time. And I, I managed to sort of craft it into something that really took advantage of sort of my interests and the things that I learned there. I had the the opportunity to learn on the job yeah. in a way that was, um, I had enough time to to really learn my craft uh, as I was going. And that was a unique opportunity and I am definitely appreciative of it. Mm -hmm. Now, if people would Google your name, they might run across a few like articles from like 10 years ago or something where uh, where it's revealed that your, one of your nicknames was Mr. Blue Marble. <laughs> so <laughs> can you tell us a bit about the, the Blue Marble image and, and the story behind it? Sure. That's not so much a nickname as something that a public affairs writer decided to call me. <laughs> yeah. So It's your gangster rap name, right? Mr. There, Blue there you go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
When uh, NASA first launched the satellite called Terra, uh, we gained the capability to sort of view the entire Earth in true color every day for the first time. So there, there, as I said, there's a long history of taking pictures of Earth from space and doing science with it. Um, scientists tend to want to make these very specific measurements that may not be necessarily true color. Um, and so we had had a couple, you know, a few dozen pictures of, of a hemisphere of the Earth in color. Hmm. So mainly from the Apollo missions, a few interplanetary missions. Also, uh, something called the geostationary satellite, which is just precisely positioned over one point on the Earth, and it actually orbits at the same rate that the Earth is rotating, so it stays over one spot. And some of those early ones were capable of taking true color imagery, so like the whole Earth catalog had an image from one of those. Mm. Um, and again, you know, the, the famous Apollo 17 image. However, uh, we hadn't really gotten a, a true color map of the whole Earth because all of those perspectives were sort of fixed above the Earth and could see half yeah, ah, at best. Right. And so MODIS went, and over the course of several years, we built up enough data to make a single cloud-free map of the entire planet, uh, working mm -hmm. with a, a colleague named Rado Stokely, uh, who is a Swiss uh, scientist who really, really, really wanted to work at NASA. So he sort of kept <laughs> emailing and, until we finally gave him an internship. Right. Uh, and he turned out to be, you know, a fantastic um, colleague. And so he built a way of making sort of the first real true color surface map of the Earth. Uh, mm -hmm. There is some others that had been sort of pseudo true color and, and integrated a few different bands um, because we didn't have a real red, green, and blue. Uh, and sort of the obvious thing to do once we had this was to recreate that feeling of the Apollo images because there really hadn't been any since 1973. And, and this was in the early 2000s. So we're talking a 30-year gap at this point. Right. And to announce this high resolution, uh, one kilometer per pixel. So I think it worked out to 40,000 by 20,000 pixels, roughly. Um, we decided to make this semi-realistic image of the Earth uh, using 3D tech, you know, the tools that we had at the time, and worked on that. It, it probably actually only took a day or two, uh, but a lot of iteration, a lot of looking at, you know, the Apollo imagery, space shuttle photography, the uh, geostationary imagery I was talking about, um, and some of the things from from Galileo and these interplanetary probes, and then you know build the blue marble, and we launched it, and it made a fairly big splash, you know, slash dot all that um, they, to mark a certain period of time on the internet, <laughs> uh, and then it was just kind of like it would pop up here and there. I'd see it in posters, but when the iPhone launched, it turns out that Apple had been using that image to um, test their color reproduction. Oh, and. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they also, you know, I, I guess, it's, I don't think I Steve, Jobs, Steve Jobs is a big fan of these types of things. Uh, so he it's like, totally is. Yeah. Like, Whole Earth Catalog right. is admittedly like a huge influence exactly. on him, right? Yeah. So yeah. I, I don't have the full story. I don't think Steve Jobs himself like selected the image, but he definitely approved it, um, was brought to his attention <laughs> from other people. Yeah. Um, I had so no the idea. The first iPhone, the promo images had the blue marble, right? It's like on the home screen or on the on the lock screen. Right? On the lock screen, yeah. You turn yeah. on an iPhone, the first thing you see is the blue marble. I bought an iPhone like the second day they were out. I uh, managed to find a, an Apple store that still had them. I had no idea. So I buy it. I go home. I turn <laughs> wow. my phone on. Yeah. I yeah. see it, and I, I literally started jumping up and down. <laughs> it was a fairly, you know, it, it was it's something I will always remember. Um, and yeah, and it, for good or for bad, you know, infamous or not. You must have but, thought you had a stroke or something, right? It's no, like, I mean, like <laughs> is this real? It's like what's going on? <laughs> I, there was a little bit of incredulity, incredulity but yeah. I, I, imagery, you know, I don't have kids, but mm. you know, I can kind of recognize my images most of the time. There, right. even though I've done. Tons. Uh, when I see something like there's just a certain feel to it that I can recognize. Sure. Yeah. So, I, so are you saying just to rewind a bit? This is not actually like a photograph, but it's actually like a 3D reconstruction of lots of images that were taken because it looks like so real, right? Oh yeah, it's it's a composite. Um, it turns out in retrospect, it's maybe not as real as I was hoping because uh, <laughs> we have better better ways to check that now. But it it's it's actually even kind of a multi stage composite. So. The first level is this global surface map, uh, which is take, uh, it was 
a little bit over a year's worth of data, um, do some very clever um, time-based analysis to get rid of clouds and in areas where you um, still had persistent clouds because there's places on Earth that have clouds, you know, on average every single day, um, and, and ways to sort of blend that. So there, there's that surface map, which in and of itself was a technical achievement, I think is actually the core part of the blue marble was that that the texture. Um, then because we weren't collecting that same type of data over the oceans and not processing it in the same way, um, I had to actually find a substitute for the oceans rather than just doing like a solid color. Uh, what I did was I used a, a parameter called ocean color, which is actually sort of <laughs> tracks phytoplankton. So it's it's just a single value. It's not like an RGB value, but um, you can kind of think of low ocean color means low amounts of algae um, and and other life. So that was dark. And then mm-hmm. as those values increased, I made it sort of greener and brighter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that just gives it a certain amount of verisimilitude, even though it's it's 100% not what the ocean actually looks like. <laughs> uh, then even worse, you know, the Arctic regions have sea ice. That was actually just like I kind of used missing data as ice because we did not have as good ice data sets then as we do now. I could do a much better job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, then wrap that all in a sphere. So very easy cylindrical map onto a sphere in a 3D program. Um, <laughs> and then sort of try to f- simulate an atmosphere because, you know, the atmosphere is a thickness. It drops off. It, it sort of makes... Um, it's not so much that it would make the boundary of the Earth and space fuzzy because it's so thin that you really don't see that. Um, although I have a little bit of a, a blurred edge on that one. It's more that as you're, you know, when you're right over the surface of the Earth, you're looking straight down and that's the the minimum effect of the atmosphere. As soon as you start looking to the side at an angle, you get more and more atmospheric effects. So I tried to simulate that that blending. And as you get closer and closer to the edge of the Earth, it gets bluer and more opaque um, and sort of fuzzier. And so yeah. I, I did a lot of iterations on that. And then trying to get, you know, a sense of 3D depth in the clouds mm, because yeah. our, our cloud map is looking straight down. Um, and so it it definitely doesn't have, like if you look at, again, a geostationary image of a hurricane, if you look out towards the edge of the earth, you can see that the clouds are like super sharply defined. They look like they've got a lot of, of height to them and structure. In the blue marble, that's all missing because it's it's almost impossible to fake. Mm-hmm. But in in uh, like if an astronaut from space would see it, they would actually see like the, the cloud structure, really. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, at least from everything I can tell, um, from yeah. looking at uh, everything from uh, an instrument called um, I'm blanking on the instrument, uh, but there's a, a new uh, the, the Discover mission that with the Epic instrument actually is a million miles away. And it takes about 14 images a day of a fully Earth-lit hemisphere. Oh. Um, and, and so that's one way of checking. Um, the recent SpaceX launch where they had the Spaceman and the Tesla, that was a really good way to kind of double-check what things look like. Um, although apparently there's uh, no UV filter on a normal camera like that because the atmosphere filters UV for us. So the UV is actually contaminating those images. So I, I've been told and, and sort of understand that the the color reproduction of those is not perfect. And then um, just like some of the newer geostationary satellites like Himawari, which is a Japanese satellite, like uh, goes R from the US are both in full color. So that gives another way of sort of double checking what the blue yeah, marble yeah, actually looks like. Yeah. Yeah, I think this this shows already. So what? So you see these images, think like, yeah, it's like a photo taken from space, <laughs> it's like, which is amazing already. But you think like, yeah, that's like that's how it works. It's like an image of reality. You can see already. Okay, oh, there's so much processing that has to happen uh, to get these images um, to look like the way they do, right? So um, maybe if we sort of try and get the the curve to data visualization where, where do you see parallels there or like what's what's a typical way of of working with these image and and data sources yeah so i they're they're definitely data um i guess one way of distinguishing you know data from a photograph is um data is calibrated and precise in a way mm-hmm. that photography isn't or generally isn't. Okay. Um, originally, like the earlier satellites were using very different technology than a photograph. You're at, you're actually building up an image one pixel at a time, um, and they also remote sensing instruments tend to use 
to see the world in many more wavelengths than just red, green, and blue, um, mm-hmm. like a camera, a digital camera does. Uh, and so that might be smaller slices of the visible spectrum, uh, but it also means that we're going far outside the visible spectrum. So near-infrared, which kind of acts just like normal light, um, shortwave infrared, which is starting to be a little weird and a little different, and it's partly from reflected light and partly actually from uh, photons that are being emitted by the surface. And then thermal, where you're entirely in you know, energy that's radiated out from the surface of the Earth, and you're not getting reflected at all. And so thermal is, is actually looking at heat. Um, and so by carefully combining all of these different wavelengths, you can actually come up with estimates of parameters on the surface. Mm-hmm. And so some sort of easy ones are like cloud cover. You know, that's that's fairly obvious. Temperature, um, mm-hmm. amount of vegetation. You know, I mentioned ocean color, which is is essentially amount of vegetation in the ocean, although it's, right. it's obvious it's a little bit more complicated than that. Uh-huh. Um, and then Could you... Drought, maybe? Like we had a really dry summer this year, right? So probably you can see that quite well. Sure. Uh, or you know, sense that... Yeah. Uh, in one way, you can just look, the earth is brown, you know, or, or Europe was brown <laughs> yeah. this summer. And, yeah, and that was an amazing obvious. GIF animation that looks horrible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, some yeah. other ways to do it is you can actually be sort of measuring the, he- the health of the vegetation. Mm-hmm. It's almost exactly just seeing brown. Um, it's, it's a pretty simple algorithm. Right. Um, much more sophisticated would be doing something like looking at soil moisture where you're Mm -hmm. looking at, you know, the top couple millimeters with a long wavelength radiation, like microwave radiation, the same thing that you use to cook food, um, is sensitive to water because that's how it cooks food is it vibrates water molecules. Uh, And so you can literally, you know, directly detect the amount of water in the top level of the the soil and the ground. Um, And so that's another really good way of, of doing soil moisture. Yeah. Or of looking at a drought. So there's a bunch of different ways to tackle it. Um, and sort of maybe the most extreme and, and coolest is um, water is heavy. Um, so you can actually detect the mass of large amounts of water from space mm-hmm. um, by looking at gravity. And so there are, there's a mission called GRACE, which measures gravity, and it can see things like the ebb and flow of the wet and dry seasons in the Amazon. Wow. Um, yeah. And so... You're, at that point, you're completely outside of the realm of photography and visible imagery, and it's mm. it's pure data visualization and cartography and you know, sensing, basically, right? It's like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's 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 totally abstract. Like Grace measures gravity. It's it's a pair of satellites with a laser link between them, mm. and where the Earth is heavier, the orbit speeds up a little bit. So the satellite, the lead, you know, the satellite over the heavy part will start moving faster, while the other one's a little bit slower. And they look at the the difference in the the waves in that laser, so like uh, the phase essentially, um, mm. and they get a gravity map out of this completely different thing. So, yeah, talk about processing. Um, yeah. It's an it's so, extremely convoluted <laughs> and sophisticated process. So you basically have lots of sensors uh, pointing towards the Earth, and uh, it's totally up to you to decide what to do with with the signals that you receive and how to transform them into some kind of imagery, right? Right. I, and I would then say, we're getting basically back to data visualization, right? Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> and I I worked very closely with the scientists at NASA. You know, they taught me everything I know about Earth remote sensing. <laughs> um, and you know, one of the the incredible things about working at Goddard is the established the scientists that were there, they were the people who founded this field. You know, mm. Yeah. They designed the first instruments. They designed the algorithms. They did the early research. Um, yeah. And so just, as I said, I was incredibly fortunate to be in this place with like the best people in the world at it. So Robert, I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of a sense of how this data, I guess this data is continuously collected from from satellites, right? So you have new new signals every day, I guess, right? Maybe oh, yeah. more often. Yeah, it's, um, it's coming down so, all the time. How does it work? So, what's the what's the current coverage from from the satellites, right? What what would you get in one day of data from satellites? Let's say uh, you actually get a picture of the entire Earth several times over um, in at, a day. 
in 24 in hours. In 24 wow. hours at several different resolutions and, and sort of from several different perspectives. And so I talked wow. about geostationary satellites. So they're, they're positioned over one spot and they just sort of hang there in space over one spot taking a picture these days every 15, 10, five minutes. Um, then there's a, a, the other sort of general class of satellites are, are called low Earth orbit um, and more specifically in a polar orbit. And what they do is they'll go over the North Pole and then the South Pole in an orbit that takes about 95 minutes to go all the way around the Earth. So mm -hmm. half of that's daylit, half of that is sunlit. And mm -hmm. they're actually just, an orbit is always just a satellite moving in a circle or very close to a circle. And mm -hmm. the Earth is actually spinning underneath it. Mm -hmm. And if you match the rate the satellite is going to the speed the Earth is spinning, you can mm -hmm. actually design the orbit so that a satellite can view the whole Earth in a single day. Wow. But And it's wow. crossing the equator at the same time every day or every mm -hmm. orbit. So like mm -hmm. typically it's about 10, 10.30 in the morning because that's the lowest cloud cover. If you're interested in land, that's when you want to put your satellite. And so um, you're building up strip after strip after strip. So much to take care <laughs> yeah, of. It's, it's crazy. crazy. <laughs> right. Now I want to read everything about satellites. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is there any animation out there that we can watch that explains how this works? Uh, I can dig one up. I did a couple mm. still images because I kind of wanted, I, I'm actually a big fan of stills um, <laughs> that, that explain a, a polar orbit. Um, there are definitely some, you know, but literally just think of, think of the earth and the satellite as being independent mm -hmm. and the satellite yeah. is just moving in a circle and the earth is just spinning underneath it. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. and that's all that's going on. Um, so it, it does get <laughs> a lot more complicated than that. Um, there are much weirder orbits. Mm. Um, and then, you know, sort of the, the width that the satellite can see from side to side can vary dramatically. Ah. Um, so like if, if you're high resolution, you probably have a, you sort of by definition have a narrow field of view. And so you're only going to be seeing a tiny strip of Earth. And then there's mm. other satellites which are designed for global coverage and they will do a gigantic swath that's like 2,000 kilometers across. Mm -hmm. um, and the trade-off there is resolution. Um, and so that's actually sort of one of the interesting and fun things at Planet, which is where I'm working at now, is with a many, many small satellites, we're doing global coverage at high resolution every day. Wow. Mm. That's fantastic. <laughs> so going back to like designing these kind of images, we, we already explained in a way that it's not that far from, from data visualization. It's a form of data visualization. And, and I guess... Um, even looking at the background that you have and the type of works that you've been um, publishing out there. Um, um, so you have this uh, great series on color and a great, I think it's called Subtleties of Color. And uh, of course, color, I guess, plays a major role there because you have to decide for every single pixel in the image what kind of color to assign and the intensity, right? Um, so how does this work? So for the types of data sets I was talking about, like vegetation, temperature, mm. um, it's, it's the same thing you would do for mapping or any type of data set where you have a, an X, a Y, and a quantity, right? So it's three dimensions of data, um, and color tends to be a really good way of encoding it because of that. Mm. Um, just it, Or it is the best of all the other available options, really, uh, for, for most things. And so then you're, you're just doing you know, this stuff that goes back to Bertin and Rogowitz and Trenish and, and uh, Cynthia Brewer, where you're just trying to carefully choose colors to represent a quantity. For the more photo-like images, they're kind of broken down into two classes. There's true color, which is red, green, and blue. Um, scientists tend to be pretty pedantic about that, and they'll say, like, near true color or simulated true color because the, <laughs> the bands don't quite exactly match um, mm. what our eyes see. So there, there's a lot of room for interpretation there. Um, I try to sort of think of my own personal sort of mental picture of what the Earth looks like from space, which I've built up from just looking at pictures of Earth from space all the time. Sadly, I've never been in space, so I can't really give you the truth of what it looks like, but <laughs> I approximate it the best that I can. I think they should send you up by now. I think you have deserved it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. I would love to do that. 
<laughs> let's get Elon Musk. Let's get Elon Musk to to sponsor yeah. your SpaceX uh, trip. Right? That is that is really tempting to like try to go all in and, and get in on that trip. Um, so that is, you know, I, I mentioned it before. I, I'm kind of going for a verisimilitude. So like something mm. that looks like people would expect the Earth to look like. Um, mm, I think okay. the real yeah. world is actually quite a bit messier than that. You know, uh, the atmosphere gets in the way, the angle that you're looking at things, the angle of the sun changes things and stuff like that. And I, I kind of try to not eliminate all that, but minimize it so that it is as easy as possible to interpret the images because that's really what I'm going for. Um, as much as for aesthetic impact, I'm actually going for understanding so that somebody can look mm. at an image and sort of know what's going on without having to like retrain their brain. Um, right, right. So, so that's the true color. And then there's an entirely separate class of images that are false color. And then they're taking these other wavelengths of light that are completely invisible to humans. We can only see them with machines. And so there is no ground truth. There is no reality to mm -hmm. be reflecting. Mm -hmm. And so then it's it's entirely up to the creator of how to present those. And there's there's definitely conventions. Like we display true color, red, green, and blue. Um, and so the convention in science is a longer wavelength, so redder and past red get the red channel, and then the shortest wavelengths get the blue channel. So if you do something that's a shortwave infrared and then a near-infrared and then a green, you'd put the shortwave infrared in red, you'd put the near-infrared in green, mm -hmm. and you would put the green in blue, which is confusing mm -hmm. at first, but it mm -hmm. makes sense eventually. And these are conventions that have built up over time. And so... There's sort of these what are called standard false color composites that a scientist or a researcher in remote sensing or, or a geographer, you know, would recognize. Um, mm. And, and that goes all the way back to saturated. It's like very like bright, strong colors, right? If I uh, recall correctly. Yeah, they tend to be, but that's not necessarily because the data is super saturated. Um, it's because the standard technique is you take the, the blackest <laughs> point in the picture and you make that black and you take the whitest point in the picture right. and you make that white or, or in each channel. And yeah. so for a scientist, what that does is it gives them maximum interpretability because mm -hmm. it's it's making the most contrast in each of those bands. So it's the biggest differences. Right, right. Um, oftentimes that's done with true color imagery too. And I, I think that it results in things that actually are pretty unsatisfying to look at and sort of can inhibit knowledge because they distort things. Like if think, huh. think of a desert, right? You're looking at desert, it's sand dunes. Um, there's basically, you know, yellows and browns and maybe some some fairly bright shadows um and you know you think of a desert and you think you know sand color right mm. if you just do a a naive contrast stretch on that and you're stretching each channel individually or you're looking for like a whitest point and a blackest point you end up turning the entire desert blue um, and right. so it, it might look like it's a snow-covered desert as opposed to <laughs> 130 <laughs> degrees F in the empty quarter of yeah. you know, Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Um, so through color, I, I think it's really important to sort of make the colors be what we expect them to look like. For false color, there there is no there there's no reference, so you can do mm. whatever you want, and and it's much more like what is the purpose of the image. And so I just try to make things that that don't seem to have an obvious color cast, um, no distractions. Um, I tend to like things that look very alien versus imagery that <laughs> looks like it could be real, mm. because then people get confused, and people, you know, we all tend to like browse images and maybe not read captions in detail. Um, you may not understand all of the subtleties of like what actually is shortwave radiation. Um, so if I give you an image that has green vegetation, you might just say, hey, this is a, it's a, a normal true color image and I'm going to read it like a normal true color image. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's a big trap basically. So, um, yeah. Yeah. But tundra, you know, like some of these wavelengths are so sensitive to vegetation that like tundra or like, you know, sort of. Um, very thin, like, grass that's just beginning to grow in the spring might come up as, like, super, super green. Even if you were in there, in that location, it would be brown. Um, and so if I use those images, I try to pair them with a true color image so that there is a point of reference and people can bring their own experience to this very alien imagery. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting. You, you can easily get confused about like reality when you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> think too much about these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, we should mention you have a great series on color yeah. um, still from your time at, at NASA uh, at the Earth Observatory blog. It's called Subtleties of Color. It's like a f five part or a six part actually. Six um, parts. Yeah. yeah, really good. Like um, color 101, like what, what are the... What are the typical traps you might fall into? What are good techniques? What are cool color spaces to work with? And so on. So it's <laughs> highly recommended. It's five years old, but I think it, it really holds up uh, really well still. Um, yeah, still so. as valid as ever. Thanks. Yeah, I definitely, <laughs> when you had Karen Schloss on, I like hit the download button immediately and was like right <laughs> yeah. into that. Yeah. Um, but I was struck by one of the the hypotheses that Enrico had was that scientists are using the rainbow palette to, to segment <laughs> out uh, a visualization. And basically he said, well, you yeah. can point to the green region, you can point to the yellow region, you can point right, to the red right. region and, and say something. And, yeah. and I think that is a, a valid use. Um, I think it, it becomes problematic because those, those regions aren't even. And if you're applying a rainbow palette to a data set, if you're not super, super careful about where your scaling is and where your endpoints are, you might you still have those boundaries because our eyes are just our visual system is just incredibly good at segmenting things into different color regions, um, but those regions may not actually align with any anything physical, mm -hmm. and so they end up being false boundaries that can let you lead you to wrong conclusions. And there's actually some papers that have been published that that show results that say, oh, there's there's a region that's bounded, and mm -hmm. the bounding is entirely in the palette and not at all in the data set. Um, and so I, I definitely think if you're super careful about how you use the color, then that's that's a, a valid use of a rainbow palette, but it, it really requires a lot of expertise and experimentation. Um, and then there's the fact that if you're colorblind, it all gets destroyed, or, or color deficient viewer isn't going to be see, able to see it anyhow. Um, so again, becomes problematic <laughs> there. That's true, yeah. <laughs> Different people might see totally different boundaries as well, right? Yeah. So that's, that makes it even worse. Yeah, mm. yeah so, I, so I have to admit that when we talk about <laughs> rainbow color maps, I, I like to be a little bit of a contrarian there. <laughs> it's it's fun. Just to mess uh, with people. Oh, it's fun. Just with, well, uh, no, wait, wait. <laughs> well, so now we are hijacking <laughs> the, the episode. We could go on forever just for the talking about the rainbow color map. But I just want to say, yeah, part of it is being contrarian, but part of it is also that I did have this interesting conversation with with some pretty smart scientists. And I think the thing that never convinced me is the fact that um, there are some pretty, pretty clever people out there that use rainbow color maps and keep using it. And they keep want, they, they want to use it even after knowing what, what, why they don't work. Right. <laughs> I think so, that's more an so, argument for the stubbornness of scientists. Yeah, I agree. I else. agree. <laughs> I agree. But on the other hand, I think some, some intellectual humility is also important, right? And yeah. um, no, but uh, I mean, <laughs> a little bit more seriously, what what uh, it's true that some of the conversations that I had back then were actually in the directions that you just mentioned. So I, I did talk with scientists who are aware of the problem. They spend a lot of time tinkering with the with the boundaries so that the boundaries are placed in the yeah. right in the right mm -hmm. position. So I have seen that. Yeah. And that's that's definitely true. And and one other thing to note is, um, especially in remote sensing, I mentioned that the the scientists that I was working with were the the people who sort of founded the field. And so this was in the late seventies, early eighties, and the computers that they were working with only had eight or sixteen colors hmm. that they could display. Like that was the the limit of the technology at the time. And of course, if you're building a computer with colors, it's it's basically primary colors. Yeah. And so these were set as conventions very, very early on in the process. Mm. Um, and so for people who have come up in the field, they're learning this from these, these conventions that were actually based on the technology that was available at the time. True. And, and so it, it's different if you're communicating with your peers, I think, than if you're communicating with a broader audience. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. I agree that that's actually the kind of feedback that I got. I think most most of the scientists I work with, they also have in mind peer scientists as their main target, right? Right. Mm. 
So I think we also have to see it in the like context of a discussion we also had in our last episode with Steve Harris. Um, yep. that there's in data visualization, there's so many truisms, like things yeah. everybody seems to know, like pie yeah. charts are bad and rainbows yep. are bad. <laughs> and yeah. It is true to some degree, but the, the much more interesting piece of information is also when they're suddenly good or like how they're bad exactly. And I think then things become interesting. <laughs> so. Yeah, I just wanted to say... Um, I think the thing that never convinced me, totally convinced me about the, the rainbow color map, especially the criticism of the rainbow color map when it's used for um, geographical uh, images, right? Is that it, so people normally criticize the map, uh, criticize this color map and use as an alternative a single U map that varies in intensity. And there's no segmentation with something like that, and it's clearly uh, doesn't doesn't meet the purpose of 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 the scientist, right? I agree with that very much. Um, so there's a couple ways around that. One is that if you add hue as a as a thing that's changing in your color palette, you put some of that segmentation back in. You also help prevent something called simultaneous contrast, which is where adjacent colors influence each other and mm -hmm. and make things harder to read. Right. Um, but you can also just either use a segmented palette, um, which breaks the data into discrete ranges, and you can pick those exactly and precisely in ways that you can't with a rainbow palette. Um, yeah. Or you can put in contours, you know, like yeah. topographic yeah. maps sure. of doing yeah. this for yeah. a, a yeah. century that's, or that's more. Yeah. Um, and I think there are technological problems with that, like making hard contours is good. That's actually on my list of things that I want to learn how to do in the next month or <laughs> yeah. so. Yeah. Um, it actually even goes all the way back um, to the ozone hole, yep. which was uh, these measurements of ozone over Antarctica. Um, and the, there's some really interesting humanities research that says that we had extremely quick action, international action, to ban the chemicals that were creating the ozone hole because it was this, this metaphor that was easy to understand and easy to see in the data. Um, mm -hmm. And so the whole actually shows up. And if you build your palette as a whole and yeah. like you can draw a line at like 190 Dobson units, which is sort of the, the definition of where the whole is, um, it's this concrete thing that people responded to. And we had a treaty within years of the discovery. Mm -hmm. um, and so, right, being able to clearly differentiate regions and things like that is a, is a critical part of <laughs> data visualization. Um, and... I, I just want people to be doing it consciously and not sort of relying on happenstance. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. I I agree with you. I don't think we disagree in the end. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a really interesting point about the ozone hole being a clearly defined object, right? Mm, and yeah. Maybe climate change is much harder yeah, to it's tackle much more, because yeah. it's like Timothy Morton says, a hyper object that's so so fuzzy and so extended in space and time that it's ungraspable, uh, essentially. Yeah. Uh, climate change visualization, um, I, I, I weirdly would say that that is actually the core of my practice over my entire career, more right. so than the true color imagery, although I think I've been doing so much of it lately that that's not necessarily true anymore. But like the, the mission of the Earth Observatory was, you know, to talk about the work of the scientists that we were employing us, essentially, and their body of research was climate change. Um, you know, the Climate and Radiation Branch is literally the name of the organization I was in. Uh, and so they were looking at aerosols, which are uh, particles in the atmosphere that scatter sunlight. Um, and so they affect how much sunlight hits the ground and how much warming there is. Um, they were looking at clouds. Uh, they were looking at overall amounts of energy from the sun versus the energy re-rated by the Earth. Um, and so, like, that entire time at NASA, I was working on ways to show this that people would understand um, at least so that there was understanding. Um, like, mm -hmm. uh, ideally, there would be understanding and action, but at least th that people would have the, the knowledge so that they could understand some of these discussions that policymakers would have. Right, yeah. And I mean, there's this, I don't know if we want to touch on the overview effect briefly, because I think it's such a good metaphor also what good <laughs> data visualization can sometimes achieve. So that's like this idea that, just seeing the world as a whole from above gives us like this certain, like hard to verbalize, but very emotional insight about that it's it's an ecosystem as a whole. It should be protected and that it's like very fragile and, and something really unique. 
it's it's an idea I really like and I find very attractive. Um, obviously, again, I haven't been in space, so I, I haven't had the real impact. <laughs> uh, I definitely like every astronaut I get the opportunity to talk to. That's that's one of the questions: is like, what does it look like? Yeah. Um, and and many of them describe this. Um, and, and not do they that say it's something qualitative much different if they see it for real than an image as you produce them? They do. Um, okay. I think the best way I've heard it described um, was by Chris Hadfield. And he was saying that when you're over, you're close enough to the earth that if you're over a desert or you're over the Amazon or you're over the ocean, that like your entire field of view is filled with that desert or that forest oh, or wow. that ocean. And yeah. the light, from the Earth is actually lighting up the inside of the space station. Okay. And so everything <laughs> becomes the color of the desert. Everything becomes the color of the forest. Yeah. Um, as originally coined, the overview effect actually was only supposed to be astronauts who have gotten far enough out that they could see the whole Earth in space by itself, uh -huh. um, which is the only people who have ever seen that are the Apollo astronauts. Um, yeah. So it's a very small number of people. And... Ironically, the astronaut that took the Apollo 17 blue marble that is sort of the definitive picture of Earth became a senator, um, and he was what was called a sagebrush Republican, um, which was a sort of a block of Western senators which were very much against environmental laws, um, very much in favor of exploitative uh, industries like mining and ranching and power generation and things like that. Um, He was a geologist before he became an astronaut. So, you know, geologists have this view of Earth in long time, um, which is, oh, it will obviously recover, you know, and humanity is just a blip. Um, so I think that was informing him a little bit. Um, but for the person who made the iconic image to apparently not have any of the overview effect at all and actually you know, have taken concrete actions to degrade the environment. Um, yeah. That's, that really gives me pause. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I guess there's also like, you know, I, I said, you know, my entire career at NASA, 20 years, and, and even at Planet, this is what I try to do, is to give people an appreciation of the Earth. And yet in 2018, at least in the United States, we're, we're losing those environmental projections. And it seems like we are in some other countries as well. And mm. so we're losing the battle. Um, despite the fact that imagery went from something that you would you would see one or two images in a decade to ubiquitous global coverage. Um, yeah. And it doesn't seem to have mattered. So I don't know how to square that circle. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah. So, so there's no silver bullet, obviously. Yeah. yeah. But uh, on the other hand, I do think it's like so many really interesting developments going on in, in satellite imagery. Um, And like what's possible on the one hand technically and what we can sense and what like insights we can draw and run machine learning over it and I don't know what. But also this this mere fact that we can see everything so well is I yeah. I, I do think it has it must have some effect, some positive effect. Uh, I'm sure <laughs> it is. But yeah, but it maybe you know, it's like, not as easy as just showing people the world from above and everybody becomes a hippie. Maybe that's yeah. not, not happening. <laughs> we tried that. Um it, it appears to fail. <laughs> it did work. Uh, what are some of the things like where people might not immediately think or connect that to satellite imagery or remote sensing that could help us like this new technologies could, could help us with are there any like what are your like your your personal favorites in terms of perspective there oh that's a really interesting question so some of the obvious ones are are looking at crops and mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. you yeah. know the trivial example is you look at a field and you say hey the crop is not doing well in this area, let me go investigate. And yeah, it could be yeah. bugs. Um, it could be something as simpler as a stuck sprinkler head that's not mm -hmm. irrigating a certain portion and, you know, easy <laughs> fix, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah. like way easier to find if you're looking at your field every day than if you have to walk out and like yeah. check, um, you yeah. know, yeah. time time and money, time is money. Um, yeah. There is some really interesting work Because this data is becoming more openly available, um, research groups and things like nuclear nonproliferation mm. are able to study foreign, um, at actually foreign and domestic um, weapons research in ways that they couldn't five years ago. Um, so looking and at you know possible hidden um, 
uranium enrichment facilities in North Korea or oh, wow. Um, wow. engine tests in Iran um, mm. or like the Russians testing a nuclear-powered cruise missile. Um, and, and so that's really fascinating. Um, and, you know, if all of your high-resolution data is classified or all of your high-resolution data is $10,000 for a single picture, um, it's work you can't do. But with easier availability and lower cost, it is things mm. that are, are becoming possible. Sure. Um, as far as like cool, weird ones, um, there's a lot of interesting things looking at ice. Um, mm -hmm. So if you have very high frequency data, you can look at the features on a glacier and sort of see how fast it's moving. Um, glaciers are essentially frozen rivers, uh, literally frozen rivers. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And so they have currents and, and different flow rates and things like that. Um, looking at uh, Arctic ponds coming and going uh, throughout the, the summer as the permafrost melts um, and things like that. Um, so they, it's there's just a ton of research going on right now. It's I think it's both the golden age of data visualization and of satellite remote sensing. There's, <laughs> yeah, there's the sweet spot, more data, <laughs> more available than any time. You know, yeah. um, people who are outside of the big national space agencies are really starting to take advantage of doing these types of analyses. Um, somebody, um, uh, I think it was Reveal News, um, did work looking at the largest consumers of water in Los Angeles. Yeah. By looking at satellite data and like <laughs> matching nice. that with water bills, um, yeah. and and like and then getting a high resolution picture and saying, look <laughs> at this yard, you know, that's in Beverly Hills, that's taking up more water than you know any hundred households. I don't remember the exact yeah. numbers. Yeah, yeah. So really yeah. surprising uses, um, and that's just going to increase. Um, and then the other sort of uh, forefront of this is starting to think of it in a big data sense, and and mm. obviously you know NASA has always been big data. But we're starting to bring more machine learning algorithms, computer right. vision type things yeah, to solve these problems where uh, it, NASA definitely, it's not like NASA doesn't know what a neural network was and has never done this work. <laughs> um, but bringing something of a fresh perspective, having far more compute available than we did five years ago or 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, and, All these and the other thing, are so fast moving. If you see that like moving in parallel, it's crazy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> so traditionally, you know, the way that NASA would work is they would say, put out a call for a proposal, and a science team would like have this very detailed thing that like before you even launch the mission, you know that it's going to work. You know, maybe you don't maybe you don't know what the answer is, but you sort of everything is is sort of constrained and, and designed to do this one thing. With machine learning, it's a little bit more black boxy. Um, yeah. And so you may actually get some more surprising insights by throwing the algorithm. Uh, on the other mm -hmm. hand, garbage in, garbage out. So it's not always <laughs> going to work, uh, but it is opening up some really new fields. So one of yeah. some of the things Planet's looking at is um, doing deforestation detection, uh, looking at development of roads and buildings, um, crop type determination, and things like that. So it's it's really interesting work to be a part of. Um, you know, as we do more of that, I'm going to get more back into mapping um, and less back into making pretty pictures. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so, Robert, I want to ask you one last question about, so say some of our listeners want to get started with playing with satellite imagery. Um, it looks to me from, from, from my experiences that I, I know where to get access to I would say regular data, but I don't know how to get started with satellite images, right? So what would you suggest? How, what, what are interesting ways to, to get started in this area? Sure. I, I mean, so the obvious answer is Google it um, because there's, there's a number of resources out there. Um, I have written both about the data access side and the data manipulation side, um, both in commercial and uh, free and open source software. So if if you Google like a gentle introdu introduction to GDAL, I've written about how to use command line to access things. Mm -hmm. um, I don't even remember what I called it anymore, but I also wrote a series of posts about using GIMP and QGIS to manipulate satellite data. Um, and those are pretty good places to get started. Um, Charlie Lloyd, Josh Stevenson, uh, Tom Patterson have all written about this. Uh, Emily Lakdawalla for the Planetary Society. So those are, are sort of the entry points. Um, and... As this matures, you know, I think we'll get um, more and more resources written and out there for people to use. Yeah. 
That's amazing. Yeah, we'll put all this in the show notes so people can check out the links. And yeah, it's a fascinating field. Don't be intimidated by all the acronyms. It's uh, yeah, they, they just come with the territory. <laughs> it's not 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 rocket science. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it is it is like the like all the the tools. They they seem quite unwieldy, and it's sort of something you need to get into. But then it's sort of super fascinating. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just use Photoshop and Illustrator for most of my work, so uh, it's not, not? like so, it's not yeah. like you have to use these more complicated, harder to get tools. Or actually, I shouldn't say Illustrator and Photoshop aren't complicated, but many of us <laughs> are already comfortable in them, and right, so right. they're a good yeah. way to get starting using the data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a fascinating field, and and we really appreciate uh, your insights there. And we're really curious to also see what what Planet.com or Planet is going to do in that space. It's yeah, it's uh, all moving so fast. And it's quite fascinating. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks so much, Robert. Thanks so much. All right. Bye, Robert. Bye. Bye. Thank Bye-bye. you. Hey folks, thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, a few last notes. This show is now completely crowdfunded. So you can support us by going on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash data stories. And if you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be extremely helpful for the show. And here's also some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We're, of course, on Twitter at twitter.com slash data stories. We have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash data stories podcast, all in one word. And we also have a Slack channel uh, where you can chat with us directly. And to sign up, you can go to our homepage, datastory.es, and there is a button at the bottom of the page. And we also have an email newsletter. So if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish an episode, you can go to our own page, datastory.es, and look for the link you find at the bottom in the footer. So one last thing we want to tell you is that we love to get in touch with our listeners, especially if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or amazing people you want us to invite or even projects you want us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And don't hesitate to get in touch with us. It's always a great thing for to hear from you. So see you next time and thanks for listening to Data Stories.